This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey guys, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Casual Podcast. Update on what I've been doing lately. Now that's 2018. Gonna be an escalating question. So I've got a four or five questions lined up about multifamily and about single family that I think you guys would enjoy. And remember to go and sign up for the Hui Deal Pipeline to get access to deals that I get sent across. Came across a good turnkey rental for a lot of you guys who are looking. So lately, I've been having a lot of problems with my single-family home rentals. You guys heard on, a, on the previous podcast, I had a $20,000 bill or so that I just didn't end up doing. So right now that home is currently vacant, just sitting there. I'm using Roofstock.com, which seems to be a pretty good way to find unsophisticated buyers. So... Currently, all my rentals are up there. If you guys want the uh, P&Ls, I'll share that with Hui Deal Pipeline Club members for the last three years so you guys can kind of see the ups and downs on that. And sign up for the club and shoot me an email, Lane at Simple Passive Cashflow for that. Right now, one of the properties is in contract. So I think this is going to be a pretty good thing for myself. You know, um, again, I'm going to have to pay huge tax gains back and depreciation recapture since I did that nasty 1031 a few years ago. Um, but you know, I think this is a good thing and I'm going to kind of get the money back, put into syndications. It's just more of a scalable asset, uh, for myself. I've got a few things wrong with my rentals. Uh, recently, one of my longest tenant went AWOL, that first Birmingham rental. So they sent in a partial payment of 965 that was received, uh, by us. And they, they now owe us about 385 for a total of, you know, 1200 bucks that they're kind of behind. And I know what you're kind of thinking, you know, why are we so behind? I mean, it's just, it's just what the stuff that happens when you've got 10 homes. Um, we don't know why they're being cooperative um, for the inspection that's coming up since I'm trying to sell their house. Um, but, you know, fast forward a couple of weeks later and, you know, her response is that, you know, she's been in the hospital again. Uh, we've got our direct number, and uh, she's supposed to bring in the late part and bringing in the last month's rent in about a week and a half. Um, probably didn't happen by the time this is recording. Again, she's apologizing for being trouble, but again, she's not returning calls. So I think what we're probably going to do on that is just start the time on an eviction. Uh, it's nothing personal, but it just starts the paperwork going in case we really do need to evict, which happens. You know, I don't know what percentage of the time it happens, maybe 25 to 50% of the time you actually go through it, but you know, it's a big chance of it happening. You know, I always like to work through with my property management to uh, find the best solution and what to do here. Everything kind of went right in this instance. You know, they alerted me of the issue, talked about it. They said it seemed like a valid reason for being late. And I asked them, maybe we can ask for a hospital invoice or a doctor's note just to, just for record keeping. And I told the property manager, you know, maybe we just want to keep those uh, records for the potential seller to explain the gap in the rent rolls you know it's also two birds with one stone because i can also verify it from the tenant with having a pretty good reason why instead of acting like someone's uh, parent and asking for all this paperwork next problem i got is rats in one another one of my properties the so the dishwasher stopped working in this house and it looks like it needs a new sprayer arm and wire harness at about 285 bucks but the bigger picture is that there are rodents in there and they're chewing up the wires. And I've got a bunch of pictures that I'll post. If you guys go to simplepassivecashflow.com and take a look at this uh, post. 
Uh, we'll need to get the repair approved, which I did, and also get a quote for the rodent re removal, which I haven't gotten yet. But I'm assuming, you know, it might be probably about 150 to 300 bucks. It seems like when any one of these like vendors comes to your house, it's at least 150 bucks just for them to make the trip worth it. We've got a dishwasher model here that we're using and the spare arm. Which I like that my property manager, they kind of gives me the part numbers so I can kind of check it. If you guys sign up for the Hui Deal Pipeline Club in the Google Drive share folder, I have a Sears pricing list for a whole bunch of different appliances to see how much you're really getting screwed by your property management. And this is a conversation I've been having with a lot of other turnkey landlords that I kind of started with. You know, we're all getting a little annoyed these days that, you know, we're paying these absorbent out-of-state remote premium prices you know i mean we're cool paying you know 10 percent markup uh you know my guy is pretty transparent he just pays the invoice and marks it up 10 percent, and that's his cut but i think that's really annoying when these guys are like charging like 12 hours 15 hours for a plumber to go fix a broken toilet i mean it's come on like really like is the guy like sitting on the couch watching like netflix or something and then taking a nap but hey you know just got my ahp payment and the uh private lending note payment so you know that'll hopefully make up for the lost rents and i've already kind of made the mental shift in my head that i'm transitioning out of this stuff so it is what it is oh by the way there's another there's mold in another one of my properties who knows how much how much that's gonna be and i heard another one of my buddies has mushrooms growing underneath the house that's not a good thing and i don't even know how to fix that Personally, I bought a drone for Christmas. For the past few years, I've been sort of amazed by these drone shots. I saw my buddy Jay Martin. He posted some shots in Chiang Mai. He had the 1080p, so I got to one-up him and uh, got to get the 4K one from Costco. That was about a 1000 bucks. Figure out one of these days, I'll go visit some cool, like, exploration of drilling deal. And, like, man, that'd be so cool to fly over Texas in the middle of nowhere and take some cool shots of that. And then I've been adding videos to our YouTube channel, and I think that the 4K is where the future is at. That's why I made that leap to that $1,000 version. Buying this thing, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I was kind of thinking of, yeah, this is a toy for myself, but would it be cool for also making other businesses out of this? Uh, you know, going to like CrossFit gyms, taking drone shots of their members working out, or taking shots of a realtor property so that they can show their customers or going to a wedding and getting the free food while I take drone pictures of the wedding. But then I had to catch myself and at some point, the person running that drone is going to be a dime a dozen commodity, just like how the millennial who's good at computers is just going to be a commodity. This uh, whole project was not going to be a money-making deal, but just a time suck or just another example of trading time for money. Um, but I do recognize, you know, part of simple passive cash flow and getting to that number is about working on things that you enjoy, things that you're engaged in. You know, what better way to share awesome times with people who are, you know, needing to get some drone shots. But I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but still searching for that, uh, the hobbies to do after I check the box on this whole finances thing. Buying a drone, you know, you use it for business. You get that little uh, entrepreneur discount that you can save on the taxes. So how can you go wrong there? Also, I've been uh, starting to get a personal trainer. So Uncle Buck Joffrey starting his intermittent fasting program a few months ago, and he lost like 40 pounds. You know, I started intermittent fasting probably in 2010, and I remember reading that book. 
uh, eat, stop, eat. You know, lately I've been kind of falling off my fitness game. So Ralph Waldo Emerson says the first wealth is health. So I, I'm stepping up my game and uh, paying for a trainer. I think it's about like 50, 60 bucks a session. But I'll say, man, he just I really never got the results that I'm getting from this guy. That's why I say you, know, you guys want to take it another level. Get off the fence. This is like the cheapest thing. Uh, as you guys know, I spent 60 grand in 2016, 30 grand in 2017 on training and mentorship and uh, going around and meeting new folks. So I just truly see the value to it. Of course, uh, it needs someone who's going to take action. And I was always kind of that guy who really never really wanted to pay for mentoring. Maybe it was an ego thing because I thought I was better, but now I'm a, a total believer in it. And it's neat seeing the barriers broken once you start doing it. When I got smart and sold my primary residence to start investing in investments that actually made sense, whoo, I needed a place to diversify quickly as opposed to some money market or some high reward checking account. Let's face it, turnkey rentals are cool and some vacations are great, but they don't come around often. I stumbled upon the American Homeowner Preservation Fund. The owner, George Newmary, once apartment syndicator too, is now sponsoring the podcast. His fund cuts the middlemen out to crowdfund the solution to the mortgage crisis in America. They are empowering you to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages and earn returns that smoke any other passive fund. If you find something else better out there, let me know. Oh yeah, they work with families to keep them in their home after buying the underwater note at a huge discount. It's an opportunity to make an impact on families and communities while earning returns. Start investing with as little as 100 bucks in investinhp.com. If you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. So that's enough for me personally. So I'll kind of get into some of these questions that you guys have been asking and submit some questions. I've kind of got a little backlog here, but we'll get to it. So the first question is, hey, what are you seeing in the multifamily markets these days? I hear everything's overheated. I guess my first, Robert Kiyosaki says that there's three sides to a coin. As investors and kind of people who transcend what the group think is, I think you always want to try and be on that edge of that coin and evaluate both sides of the arguments. In this case, you know, multifamily, yeah, it's overheated, but you want to be trying to find the deals that are have that distressed seller or have that story behind it because that's that kind of deal is going to transcend a good or bad market. It doesn't matter if you're in a super inflated market. If you have the value-add potential, then you've got a deal. Here's some other things I've been saying. Now, the Class C assets are sort of getting a beat down cap rate wise, cap rate compression, which is the delta between the cap rate and interest rates. Therefore, a lot of experienced investors are getting more into the class B because the cost per unit is pretty much the same and they're just getting a better, more newer property. And, you know, this is sort of moving the normal business plan from turning C class to B to uh, more B class to B plus. And the thought here is, heck, you know, we might as well go for the eighty, the 1980s build instead of a 1960s, 70s build for the same price. Having a newer asset might be a little bit more conservative way to go to with this stage in the market cycle. In a correction, an A class will move to B, B class will move to C. And from what people tell me and what I sort of believe, the lower class, the D and C class in the tertiary areas will see the most of the vacancy or the rent concessions because those will just sort of go offline. 
Next question. Somebody asked about general thoughts about the hurricanes, and you know, I got the pondering, and I looked back when New Orleans was hit by Hurricane Katrina, and there were short-term disruptions to gas prices, especially around Houston during that time. Uh, I expect federal money, which might have been focused on helicopter money or projects where they bring in inf- money to spend on infrastructure, and they call it helicopter money because. It goes around all the big companies and the banks and supposedly goes right to where you need the money or right to the people, you know, the construction workers. Although being on the front lines of that and being, you know, in charge of federal money and state money to do that kind of work, you know, a lot of it does go to the white collar staff and the big corporations. But anyway, that's, you know, all that aside, these kinds of projects, the tax can be used now and redirected to and a lot of these disaster impacted area, the money is being redirected for damage recovery, which will manifest as tax breaks, loan subsidies, or other incentives offered to entice investment capital into those affected markets. So this is definitely an opportunity in the short term to go in there and develop or take advantage of the fiscally earmarked casualty funds. As a long-term investor myself, you know, I'm not really... Um, interested in this you know yeah i'm keying in on what's happening with the big institutional players like what the insurance companies will do but i suspect that they will actually have to pony up and pay pay the claims in houston and florida which will divert funding away from their plan a you know the real business plan which is financing new a-class multifamily apartments in their other markets uh you know and that's what these insurance these huge insurance companies do you know whether it's life insurance or or whatever that they're taking your money and they're investing in super stable assets, very low low return, but very stable. And a lot of times they're just looking for that capital preservation at that 5% return a year. So the result of them doing this is you know less new developments coming online, which is great for the Class B and Class C multifamily investor who have been struggling with the recent cap rate compression. So what's happening here in review the insurance companies, they're funding the A-class stuff. They're the institutional buyers. So if they've got to pay out claims, now there's going to be less uh, money going into the A-class stuff. So you know, as an investor looking to do the B-class, C-class, the A-class stuff coming online is really your, what's kind of coming in, putting your downward pressure on your pro- product. The other random thoughts that's happening in the multifamily market and maybe some of you single family guys can take a uh, glean from this is at first, you know, a lot of uh, low or no equity homeowners will walk away from their properties and focus on rebuilding their lives as renters for the next two years. These foreclosures will certainly impact values in numerous communities like at Houston or Florida. Number two, insurance companies will have to rethink their coastal markets and policies premiums for the time. Um, you know, and this may lead to uh, more long-term changes in the way they insure these properties. This, along with in- the inevitable increase in flood insurance premiums, will also impact the buying power for future homeowners. Third point here, you landlords will be in demand for higher rents as there will be a shortage for housing for the next year or w- while the properties are re- being rebuilt. And lastly, the long-term impact can only be spec- speculated on since this is an epic storm that caused billions of dollars in damages to homes, autos, and businesses. But those purchasing single-family homes, 
they could be distressed sellers next time. So always buy value add is kind of what I'm saying these days, especially where you're buying single family homes. So the next question came from a multifamily uh, investor. They said that they're having a lot of troubles here lately. It seems like the standards in submitting LOIs or letter of intents, and those are what in the multifamily world and commercial world, those are the offers. Um, you know, because the climate's been changing in the past nine months, and uh, they just kind of wanted to see some thoughts on what I've been seeing from the front line. So I've got probably about three or four points here. So the first point is looks like the business conditions are dictating that proof of funds being submitted with the letter of intent. Very similar to what you guys do with single family homes. When you submit an offer, you usually submit a bank statement or some kind of proof of funds. Usually it's not in there with multifamily because it's a little bit more sophisticated and people don't really need to prove themselves. But lately you've been having to do this. You know, talking with other investors who are underwriting the deals with 80% leverage, 1% interest only, and 1.25 debt service coverage ratios. It's looking like it's becoming more and more common for brokers to review these buyers underwriting before accepting an LOI and present to the sellers, which you can make an argument that's not really um, legal. <laughs> the broker's view is that these terms aren't very aggressive and they're very reluctant to waste their seller's time. You know, there's always a push and pull with the seller and the broker because the broker gives the seller these letter of intent or these offers to sort of give them signals or data from the market. So a lot of times the brokers will either be trying to most likely lower their price. And a lot of times they don't want to give them bad data. Maybe they might want to take a lower offer in and just show that the market out there is kind of lowballing the property to get that seller to lower the price. Again, this might just be a little game that the broker plays just so that they can sell the property quicker so they can collect their paycheck and put food on the table. So a lot of times these brokers, they don't they don't really like these 80-20 terms, the 1% interest at the debt service coverage ratio of 1.25 because it comes down to your lending team. So the lender that you're choosing is very important because in multifamily and, and showing the strength of your offer, you have to put forth your team and your lender is just, you know, it's a small portion of it, but it is a piece of it. If nobody knows that lender, then then it holds less weight. The larger deals have been falling out of escrow due to the over-aggressive underwriting that you can't find the financing to do this. For example, Las Vegas lenders are underwriting at a 65, 35 loan to value, so a lot less than an 80% and a 1.3 debt service coverage ratio. So you can't really find that these days. Uh, you can change your underwriting to match the standards of the local market, which gives the brokers more confidence and therefore remain on their A-list to do more deals with them. But then when you finally put the property under contract and you go through due diligence, your lender's like, what the heck, man? Like, we can't land on this. So you're kind of in a uh, tough spot there. So I guess your only op other option is to do nothing, which is, you know, not doing nothing is probably the best thing to do if your numbers aren't working. And a lot of times these guys, they're needing a proof of funds with that letter of intent. A lot of times, you know, you may not have the net worth of $5 million, $10 million dollars. What a lot of people use is this term called an angel who is part of your team. You probably have to give them an option to be a KP or co-sponsor in the deal if, if the deal goes through. But yeah, you submit their uh, balance sheet and you kind of just use them and as 
the uh, financial backing. So at least you can get to the gatekeeper. Uh, a lot of the average price per unit for a lot of these C-class value-add stabilized assets that can qualify for these non-recourse debt. Again, we don't go after the heavy value-add stuff, you know, the 30% occupied, 60% occupied. A lot of the stabilized is 90% occupied or more. You know, so the price per unit on these things are ranging from fifty-five dollars to $85,000 per unit. So that puts a proof of funds for like a 200 unit at around six million bucks. So you're gonna have to find that angel with that kind of balance sheet. Second thing here, the post-close liquidity, which is needed to qualify for the loan, is usually about 10% of the loan. So again, your angel can provide that or you can get that from another member of your team. So if you're getting a $5 million loan, you're gonna need 500 grand just sitting in the bank, not really doing anything. I don't know if you can use AHP for that liquidity. Supposedly a lot of guys have been getting their money out pretty quickly. I, I don't know if a bank will see that as you know liquid funds. Number three here, they're going to want to see the proof of net worth equal to the value of the property. Again, if you're going after that 200 unit property that's worth $6 million, you're going to need to have a $6 million guy on your team. Or you know if you're... If you, you're worth three million. Your buddy's worth three million. Then there you go. You you hit that amount. Previously, that was the net worth equal to just the loan value, but it looks like it might be coming a little higher, or that just might be um, you know just a one off in that sort of area. Number four. So a lot of places to submit deals, especially on the bigger stuff, they're gonna want hard money involved. So the standard is becoming one percent of the purchase price. But a lot of the lower standard is 0.5% hard money. And usually that will sort of place you in at least the best and final offer position. So again, take that $6 million asset. They're going to want to see you put down like 60 grand hard or at least 30 grand hard that you may lose that money if you don't perform. And there's different times and phases when that money will actually go hard hard. Now, sometimes you can make it after the first 10 days of inspection, maybe so you can go through and at least inspect like the, um, the, the big components like the HVACs or the roofs. But as far as walking every unit and check, checking out every nook and cranny, like how you should, uh, you know, you're not going to have a, your money's going to be hard before you get a chance to do that. So it really thins the crowd and it is a seller's market. So enough on multifamily, uh, well, switching more toward the single family home world. Question is, I heard you say in the podcast that you have a team in Atlanta. How'd you go about building a team there? Uh, is there a podcast episode on that? Well, here is a podcast episode on that. So I, I think that there's no secret that it's a seller's market. These turnkey properties in non-war zones are becoming sort of an endangered species. When I started picking these things up in 2013, you could get a property inside the loop track or an under an hour commute from the city center. That would get you a 1980s to a 1990s product, but now you're looking outside the loop highway in the 1940s to 1960s era property. The good turnkey providers are frankly making more money selling to retail buyers than us cheapo investors who's got a million questions. The stuff I see coming out most on my list of properties that I get is that you would not want to buy. 
now unless you had someone boots on the ground who is not trying to sell you and is agnostic to the transaction you know you're going in blind into a loaded minefield when you're working straight with a turnkey provider there is a podcast episode i would just google search turnkey provider at simplepassivecashflow.com and that podcast will come up how i identify there's you know there's three ways you can buy these turnkey rentals one through a turnkey provider two through a marketer which i don't really recommend and the midway which is going through the hybrid route which is doing it on your own getting a broker getting a property manager on by your on your own but again that requires a little bit of experience and guidance so you know i don't want to plug the coaching but maybe that might get you there doing the group coaching or you can sign up for the light coaching just on an acquisition basis you know the tools are all out there the information's all out there for you to do this too I'm beginning to leverage my contacts in finding investor-focused real estate agents who know what I'm looking for a rental property. And you know this effectively cut it out the middleman for me after I acquired a few turnkey rentals. You know, I was able to kind of do it on my own. So what I found is that, you know, once you find one good person to work with, you can usually find the other people to work with because good people associate with good people. You know, even even in the single family home world, you know, I feel like simple passive cash flow uh, Facebook group has reached a tipping point where everything you need in a pure investor group is there. I think we've almost got 200 members in that group. You've got the right people that are actually investors, and I really try and keep the vendors out of there. One way I see getting the most out of these groups is stop being an asshole, as I said. You know, asking a one-off question and not contributing to the community. Is a surefire way to get crickets and a you know one random answer from the vendor uh, out there trying to make a sale. But you know you guys missed the point, right? Because a lot of my successes come from building relationship, and th- that's the goal there to build a relationship. A lot of the moves that I made in say Birmingham to move from one property manager to the other has come from just a few people that I've built very good relationships and we, you know, we talk from time to time and we ask each other where we're going and we kind of flock, um, fly as a flock and kind of go to the best vendors and use the same people. If you guys don't know how to do this, uh, you know, put your perspective goggles and think, you know, how can I add value to someone or others? What do they need? Stop thinking about yourself. Get off my soapbox. So my call to action is to uh, team up with me and, and help me source properties and teams and let me know what you guys are seeing because maybe I can help vet them or I know someone else down there that can vet them. Uh, so that's, again, what that Hui Deal Pipeline Club is that we all work together. I'm not a guru, but it's more of a collaborative thing. We need to stick together and work as a Hui, which is Hawaiian for uh, you know, a group of people collectively working together. You know, I know what happens when you read a few websites and podcasts and you want to go at Ramble style and do it yourself. But, you know, when I first got started, I got eaten by the sharks because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I'm not saying that this is you, but, you know, I talked to a lot of you guys and I can tell you guys don't know what you don't know. You guys leave so much money on the table, especially in the due diligence process that you don't realize it until a couple of years down the road, if you even realize it. And I don't discourage anyone from not buying because at the end of the day, even with the prices where they're at, uh, you know, it's still better than the equity markets. And I currently believe that there is a 50% chance that we'll see a recession in the next three years. You know, you got to keep investing and just keep investing as long as the numbers make sense. You know, if you don't know the numbers or don't think you know them, 
get someone to help. Talking to a couple hundred people over the past year, and for those people saving less than 30 grand a year you know, after their day job and paying off their expenses, and even if they do have some rental income, if you're making less than 30 grand, yeah, you should be looking into some kind of turnkey rental in a market like Kansas City, Memphis, Atlanta, Birmingham, Seattle. Uh, no, actually, I'm kidding there. You don't want to be in Seattle. You don't want to be in San Francisco. You don't want to be in the state of California or Hawaii. Look, you're just not going to get the cash flow there. The short-term goal is to gain landlord acquisition knowledge and build a cash flow base so that you can get up to at least a couple thousand dollars of cash flow a month. But once you achieve that, you know you should step up to the larger passive partnerships or syndications because the return to pain in the butt ratio is just greater. People call or you know they write in or they write on the forms. And they fail to see this as a two-phase journey. It's always either cash flow or appreciation or single-family homes or multifamily homes. It's not as simple as that. The people here, the benefits of the multifamily, and they come up with these ridiculous 1,000-unit goals when they have not even bought their first buy-and-hold single-family home. Eventually, a lot of these people will fizzle out because starting out a multifamily is just harder. And a lot of these people they would have reached success if they would have just started with single-family homes to begin with. But I don't know, people like to uh, bite off more than chew. They can chew. So I'm always an avid advocate for keeping things simple, which is probably why the website is called Simple Plastic Cashflow. Uh, I want people to do the minimum effective dose to maximize returns with the minimal effort. And that's why I think you know if you're below $30,000 of savings per year, Start simple. Um, if you're above that, you know, you may still want to start with single family homes just to learn it. You know, a lot of people will ask me, okay, so this $30,000 rule, kind of a loose marker. Partly, I, I think the $30,000 rule applies is because, you know, at $30,000 a year, you can be buying a single family home every year. And that, that gets you on a pretty quick pace to get up to a substantial cash flow level, you know, buying one property a year for five years, and then you're buying a couple a year at that point um, but you know people ask like what where do you think the crossover point is to step up to syndications um, you know and I'm trying to learn this uh, and trying to figure this out too um, but you know when you transition it's a lot less analyzing an individual property but more analyzing the people and the stuff that they're telling you so a lot of the stuff you learn in the single-family homes and doing it yourself and being the direct operator will help you decoding the BS that they tell you and a lot of these executive summaries. Uh, you know, it's because, you know, you guys send me a lot of deals um, that you guys might want to invest in. And, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll try and give up, give you guys my input as best as I can. Uh, you know, like, I just kind of cut and pasted some of my comments here on this last deal that someone sent me, you know. So some of the cons I said, you know, it's a 19... 90s bill, A-class, um, 120000 a door, reposition. Um, and I'll t I told him, you know, hey, we're usually buying it, you know, fifty dollars to $70,000 a door with a stabilized building that has over 90% occupied. Uh, it just doesn't seem like from the question the guy is even um, is aware of that. You know, those, kinds, those are the really things that you should be looking at. Um, you know, they're asking questions like, oh, the loan is 80% loan to value. Is that too high? And that, that question is just like, 
come on, man, you don't even know like how to use leverage. Like you got to maximize the leverage by still cash flowing at a safe margin. When looking at the loan, you need to look at the term length, such as the loan, the loan length. You know, is it five year, eight year, ten year? And then you need to be looking is is it a recourse loan or is it non recourse loan? And what are the prepayment terms? So you know, again, the questions just kind of speak to just how little or unaware this investor is. The loan is 36 months, and yeah, this is exactly what I said. It's very dangerous in this cycle. Five years and less is very dangerous. Uh, just the, the last one we did in Oklahoma City was a 10-year, 4.22%, three-year interest only. Uh, again, that 10 years, what's going to bridge the gap to more, uh, you know, in case there is a recession, you, that 10-year will probably bridge you to the next side of when that property is back, right back up. Some of the pros that he saw on this uh, this deal is, you know, he, he liked how the sponsors experience, but he wanted to know how to verify this. And this is what I do. I talk to investors who were in their past deals. And the only way to do that is to expand your network. You know, I go to a lot of masterminds and I fly to conferences and I rely on my network to dis- to discuss reputation and character. Uh, you know, this is not going to be completed via emails or phone calls. This is going to be in person because, you know, a lot of these relationships, it's in it. You can't really put that in writing. Hey, have you been in Bob's deal? And you know, they're not going to say yes, yes, sir. Bob did not perform in an email. You know, that's just not going to happen. And this is where why relationships come into it. Um, you know, they're, they're making comments on this investor waterfall that they're thinking is favorable. I think waterfalls are less favorable for the passive investors usually. Generally, the best terms for investors are simple 80-20 or 70-30 splits. Waterfalls raise a red flag for me. I've seen people balk from a high sponsor fee, but that's just one thing. If If it's a deal, then the sponsors should be able to take what they want. Uh, you know, because some people will be like, "Oh, you know, it's a, it's a seventy thirty split." The last one I did is eighty twenty split. Uh, I think, I don't think that's something you should be looking at. Look at the deal. Don't see. Don't look at how the deal is structured. I mean, if there's enough meat on the bone, which is what you really should be going for, who cares if that lead sponsor is taking fifty fifty or sixty forty? Um, to some degree, yeah, that does come into play, but. You know, if the returns are there and they have a good reputation, then that sponsor deserves every single penny of what they get. And a lot of times those waterfall payout systems, they really incentivize the lead to kind of just, you know, phone it in. First few tiers is where they'll get paid. And then that last tier, they can structure it, you know, where the investor gets paid at that point. It can also be the other way around. I'm not saying that it isn't, but that's kind of the games. And I just don't like when things are very complicated. Based on my limited and growing knowledge, I wouldn't invest in that particular deal that the guy was investing in. Partly because the guy just doesn't know what he's doing. And I just don't know if the guy can source good deals other than the, hey man, I got a deal guy from the local RIA, which just kind of screamed like it was. Talking about executive summaries, and I will put together a report on how to analyze these executive summaries, but you're just scratching the surface on these. The true analysis of the deal requires that you have the income and loss statements and the rent rolls going back at least 12 months, possibly 36 months. This is where the analysis differs from single family or uh, units under a dozen. 
Another part to an analyze is the rental comps because 90% of the predictions are based on the performer rents per square footage. A lot of smoke and mirrors can be used by the brokers or the lead syndicator to inflate this number. The comps need to be verified and is really a touchy-feely thing. I've done this before. I go up to a property in a hoodie and I pose as a tenant trying to want to live there to other competitive comps. It can't be a touchy-feely on this thing where a 1985 property looks like a 1987 property on the west side of the train tracks. Uh, you know, and that one gets one a dollar twelve rent per square foot. So this one surely should be a dollar twelve. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of garbage underwriting with annual rent increases of two point five percent and higher. You know, three percent, four percent, and that's just not going to happen. I've seen expenses increases less than inflation at like one percent. It really should be about two percent annual increases and total rent increases over like 18%. You know, something that my partner Patrick has opened my eyes to is don't pencil in anything over 10% to begin with unless you're in like market where the rents are just climbing such as like Austin, Texas or Dallas, Texas, for example. If someone thinks that they're gonna bump the rents up 30%, that person is probably smoking a lot of pot. Past performance is not an indicator of success. And the fact that we went through probably one of the best periods from 2012 to 2016 Anybody could have made money in these apartments if you were in the right place. So someone said in their last deal that they saw a 70-30 as opposed to 80-20 split, which they understand to be generally accepted industry standard for syndicators. How do you think about evaluating deals with respect to the profit spit, both from investor and sponsor perspective? I'm trying to understand the situations where a below market upside would be acceptable and how the sponsors decide what structure to use. Is it just based on supply demand and the reputation of deal sponsors? For example, sponsors slash GP will make the deal as favorable to them versus the LPs as possible while still being able to attract investors. So my response to this is I see a lot of Yahoo's doing 70-30 splits with silly assumptions like 1% uh, expenses increases and expect expectations to bump rents over 20%. Uh, I do see a lot of 80-20 and 90-10 deals that are run by folks with a long and short track record. So it's a very fragmented uh, pricing system. Uh, beware of a person with a nice suit or high gloss, as I say. If the PDF looks super polished, you better take another eye to that. Uh, you know, everybody's got cool bio pages where they've got you know, spiffy uh, um, profile picture on there. Do not mistake it for reliability or perceived value. I personally don't really look at the GPLP splits. I, again, I just look at the P&Ls and rent rolls first after I vetted the, uh, the lead as a good character. Uh, the way that I see it is that if it's a great deal, then we as LPs should not have a large room for area. And heck yeah, the GP should be taking a large cut. But things get muddled by the assumptions when the GP starts you know, playing around with these numbers. Quite frankly, unless you've analyzed 100 or 200 multifamily properties and put in a few LOIs, I don't think you'll be able to see where the red flags are. But there's a YouTube video out there that I'll post in the uh, show notes and the website where there's this bear and basketball awareness test 
And what they tell you is, you know, take a look at these kids bouncing the basketball and count the number of bounces. Uh, and what you fail, fail to see is the big bear that kind of comes in the background. And this is what I see a lot of you guys do. You guys are taking a look at these 70-30 splits, 80-20 splits, 90-10 splits, and you're like, you're paying attention to that. You're, but then you fail to realize what the deal is. The deal is the comps, the deal is the P&Ls, the deal is the rent rolls, the deal is the reputation, the real reputation on the street of the syndicator. And that's what, that's what you guys should be looking at. Uh, last question here. Uh, quick thoughts on mobile home parks and self-storage. Uh, and I'll say we just did a RV park uh, that we wrapped up uh, last month. I recognize that both are still under the real estate category, but it's sort of a good way to diversify outside of residential real estate in a heated market. And I admit, I don't really know much about the two, especially self-storage. From what I have gathered from other in- investors and leads, the cash flow in mobile homes is a little higher than apartments, but there's not an explosive upside that you do see in a lot of these apartments during the sale. Upside is never really captured in the conservative performer anyway. The mobile home parks are not being made, and in times of correction, they're going to be in much higher demand. And I think that's a big selling point for the mobile home parks and why I kind of jumped into the space. I've been looking at some mobile home parks and talking to a bunch of you, if more of you're interested in either a you know, single asset, more higher risk, higher reward mobile home park, or a more diversified play of multiple parks in one. So I guess, are, are you guys looking for single malt scotch or are you guys more looking for blended whiskey here? This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.